Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Jennifer, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So you got your PhD in physics and astronomy. How did you make your way to data science? And just as interestingly, how did you make your way into sports data science? Sure. So um, my background is, you know, starting from undergraduate, uh, I was at Northwestern. I was in the integrated science program and also studied math and physics. I actually originally started out uh, at in neutrino physics uh, and did research at Fermilab for several years, uh, starting when I was an undergraduate and then continuing uh, into my PhD. And about maybe during my first or second year of my PhD, I realized that that's not quite where my passion was. And um, you know, looked at a couple of different labs, and I'd always had an interest in in neuroscience and, and kind of how the brain worked. And so I wound up working uh, with a professor who was in a uh, biomedical engineering and uh, mechanical engineering lab, looking at how the brain encodes touch. Um, and so in particular, studying the rat whisker system. So I, I joined that lab and started doing um, some behavioral as well as computational uh, neuroscience work. And really through that is how I kind of became exposed to machine learning. I really hadn't had any exposure or really knowledge of the field prior to that, but just um, particularly through a neural coding project that I worked on, really started to to learn about all of the, um, you know, work that had been been done in, in you know, pattern recognition and machine learning for years and really found that to be my passion um, and, and got involved uh, in that. And then uh, after graduating, I was actually at a uh, insurance company doing predictive analytics for a year. And then this position at Stats opened up um, where they were you know, creating a, a new AI data science team to you know, leverage this, this wealth of data that Stats has and to um, you know, pr- you know, produce new, new insights and you know, leverage machine learning and AI to really kind of revolutionize how we understand and ingest and even take sports data. Interesting. Uh, so that first exposure to machine learning from a neuroscience perspective was that you mentioned that was a, a project that you worked on as opposed to a class. Can you elaborate on it? Sure. So um, one of the great things about my graduate uh, school lab was that we were from all sorts of, of different departments. So I was in physics. We had applied math people, uh, neuroscience students, BME students, MECI students, all in the same lab, which made it you know a great really kind of fertile cross-collaboration. Um, and one of the students who was uh, BME, more on the BME neuroscience side, he had been taking all of this neural, neural recordings from uh, primary sensory neurons and saying like, well, how do we understand what the brain is actually encoding? What, what is the actual original input and the appropriate representation that goes into the neurons that, um, that the rat could be using to make these, these discrimination tasks much higher up, kind of later in the processing stage. Um, and so I was asked to kind of, uh, be involved in the project and kind of help do that because I had the more, you know, uh, mathematical background. And so really it was just kind of like, here's, here's a problem we're trying to solve. We have, uh, we have whiskers that are being tracked from there. It goes into a mechanical model. We can get forces and moments and we want to predict. And then we have neural recordings. We have an electrical signal from that. We can extract spikes and we basically want to go from, you know, mechanics to spikes and see where those see what the neurons are encoding. And in trying to solve it, that's really where I got um, 
you know, got exposed. And so, you know, we were using things like general linearized models, but in the process of learning that, then I was just exposed to the whole, you know, breadth and wealth of, of techniques that were out there. Yeah. I, I never cease to be fascinated by this kind of two-way relationship between neuroscience and machine learning, where learning and being inspired by neuroscience to innovate on the machine learning side, but neuroscience is also benefiting heavily from that innovation and the way they understand uh, neurons. Super interesting work. What does stats do? You 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 know you kind of mentioned sports and uh, sports data, but what's the idea behind the company? Yeah, so so stats is you know I've been around for about thirty five years, and we have this huge amount of of data that we collect across all types of sports. You know, common sports that you think of, you know, football, basketball, baseball, but also some that that you've probably never have and you'll 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 never never experience because they're they're more remote. And so we have all of all of these kind of records and data that exists there. But in addition to that, you know, for certain sports we have kind of a next level of data that's our event data. So if you were to look at a sport like um, like soccer, we know where, you know, we know information about passes and shots. Um, and things like that that we can use to further understand the game to really start telling it, you know, a better story of what actually occurs and, and who's contributing and how. And then, kind of as a the layer on top of that, again, in uh, sports like um, like soccer and basketball, we have player and ball tracking information. So really, at at every point during a game, we know where all the players are on the field and we know where um, where the ball is. And then that really allows us to tell you know, an even richer story and understand the game and really kind of, um, you know, draw further insights and do, you know, more complex analysis to really recreate the game from, from this data. And who is the target or end consumer of the analysis that you're doing? Is it the, the teams or consumers like via media products? Right. So it spans, it spans everybody. A lot of it is media facing. So if you can imagine you're watching, uh, watching a game and a lot of times an announcer will add some kind of statistics that have to add color to it, you know, it, very likely that data is coming for, from, from us. Um, and, you know, then even as a consumer, if you're, you know, going onto a site or you're asking, um, you know, for a sports statistic, um, chances are we're providing that data as well. But also the teams. There's a you know team performance space where teams want to know again all of the stats about their players. And you know now that as we're you know adding uh, more advanced analytics on top of that through machine learning, you know how can we actually deliver them insights directly as opposed to just maybe raw data points? Interesting. I must be the only one that thought that sports announcers just had these amazing statistical memories <laughs> for their teams that they follow. <laughs> right. Right. No, it's it's impressive the amount of of manpower from, you know, just at, at all levels, whether it's, you know, the kind of the engineering side that that creates the database that stores it, that allows that data to be accessed quickly to the more, you know, media facing people who are, you know, in the truck, knowing how to access that data and kind of find the right, you know, ask the right question to, to surface the right insight so that you can can get that kind of uh, interesting fact during during the broadcast. Along those lines, can you talk a little bit about the... I guess your data pipeline, the way you kind of conceive of and mapping out all of the data that's coming in and the flows and, and how you process it? Um, sure. So a, a lot of that is very, um, very sport and also like data, data specific. So how we collect 
what I'd call a traditional box score data is, is different from, you know, the tracking data. So our group uh, focuses primarily on how we make value out of, out of the tracking data. Um, so for a sport like basketball, for instance, you know, we have, um, you know, cameras in venue that would, you know, collect the, you know, track the players um, and then, you know, produce these, you know, process it using, you know, computer vision techniques and then uh, extract the positions and then, you know, intake that for for later analysis. And then our group is, you know, really saying, all right, now um, you could imagine that the way you you ingest and store data from just kind of a storage perspective is different than how you maybe want to format it to um, to make make discoveries and make insights and, and kind of surface them quickly. So a lot of the work that, that uh, our group has done has been to really kind of look at uh, a lot of the advances and technologies in the, um, the big data space and, and, you know, some of the cloud computing and uh, NoSQL databases out there to, you know, how can we, how can we shape the data in a way that um, answers questions of interest and allows us to do the analysis that we want. Um, you know, so then we can, you know, take this raw data and start, um, you know, start enriching it, start adding information on top of it. Um, and again, you can imagine that there's just, there's so much data that for a single game, um, you know, depending on the sport, 10, 20, you know, points per player per second across an entire game, there's, there's a huge amount of data there. So really leveraging a lot of those, uh, the big data stack that exists out there to, to process and analyze and literally just kind of move it around so that it can be surfaced quickly. Interesting. So do you, does your group or even do you personally identify more with the data engineering and kind of infrastructure uh, side of things or more the statistical analysis and the, the data product side of things? So we really get to interact with it from throughout the, the entire life cycle because um, and I think that's really important because the the representation and the Right. The way you encode and, and format and understand and represent your data is really critical for for any analysis to occur um, downstream. So, you know, we work with engineering to actually like, you know, to build the products, to put it into production. But, you know, we're we're keenly involved in, in saying, like, what is that right representation? What is the right storage? How do we um, you know, the how do we format and store this data and describe this data in a way that really captures all the information and, and it isn't lossy because we don't want to do anything to the data that could possibly, um, you know, lose information. And so we're certainly involved in kind of that that early process. And then we, you know, work with with engineering to, um, you know, to build out the pipelines so that we can do the analysis. We build the models and then we get those models into production. And then we also interact closely with um, with our design team as far as, all right, I you can imagine, you know, I, I have a certain a certain insight, a certain data point that I want to surface to the end user. But whether that end user is a team or a consumer or a, a media client, the same piece of information could be uh, ingested in different ways. So what's the right way of presenting that to you know answer the questions that, that they're looking for? Do any particular examples come to mind of how the representation, you know, particularly as deep as, you know, the, the way the data was stored had an impact on the, the insights that you were ultimately able to derive or the models that you were ultimately able to create and kind of that back and forth between representation and, and product? Sure. So, um, you know, you, you could imagine that, you know, again, for, for our tracking data, we have all of the, the positions of the players. 
And, and there is so much information there that, you know, um, how it's stored, how it is accessed is, is very, very important for, for processing time, as well as our ability to do, um, to do analysis. So um, one of the things that, that you know, our, our group does is that we work directly on, on the trajectory. So given the players, um, you know, we can leverage both the individual player motions as well as the group structure uh, that's involved in sports to start, you know, to build our analysis, to, to do our predictions. So um, one of the challenging things with sport, you can imagine, is that they're not just, you know, think of think of basketball. They're not just five independent agents per per team, right? They're they're interacting with people, um, with their with their teammates. They're also interacting with the other uh, their team um, to try and understand an individual player's movement, kind of in isolation, is really losing that that interactiveness. Uh, that exists. In contrast to, um, say, something like pedestrian detection, where you have, uh, you know, where you have a variable number of, of people out there, and they're just kind of trying to avoid each other and things like that, right? There's a much more complexity in that kind of group behavior that exists in sports. And so we're really able to um, exploit that and work on the trajectories uh, together and understand that all of the players are really involved in interacting, um, and from there build our models. Uh, which really allows us to, again, like to work on that that really true raw representation of the data. And so to make sure I understand that, is there or at some point in designing this pipeline, this process, was there a trade-off between whether you stored player information individually or in the context of a team and you chose to do it in the context of a team? Is that what you're getting at here? So, so from the from the data data model, not as much. Um, you know, you can imagine having having each player has has a location, um, but then kind of once we have that stored, you know, h- how we leverage it is really uh, kind of where the where the keys are. Or maybe I'm not quite quite following your question. Sorry. Oh no, I was I was going back to your comment about how you found it important to tie kind of the underlying data engineering to the kind of the work to be done and how you often find that, you know, the problems you're trying to solve influences the way you need to store and represent the data at a low level. And I was kind of digging for examples of, you know, where that low level representation, you know, made a big impact or you, you, you weren't able to accomplish something until you tweaked that low level representation. Sure. So, uh, Right, really having you know information about all the players at every point in time um, it is really key. And so, kind of from a data perspective, that's that's really where we operate. And then, you know, at the more of the modeling stage, I mean, if you look a lot, at a lot of the work that that our group has done, has been around like leveraging the formational uh, alignment of of players, so that we can really understand again operating directly off of the trajectories as opposed to. Um, you know, having to having to operate. Um, yeah, let's see. I'm trying to think of. of a so it, it sounds like maybe what I'm hearing then is you you may have this data that is you know it may come in as images, uh, and you have to figure out how to store that, and then you may ab- extract from that X Y positional information, uh, but you you know, also want to eventually get to player trajectories. And as opposed to having to figure that out each time, you need to be able to store that. And so there's there's this constant trying to figure out how to store these things that you're ultimately going to need to go further with your end products. Is that where you're going? 
Sure, that's that's certainly um, you know one aspect of it is you know extracting as much information as we can out of the image, and then you know going through the whole tracking life cycle, if you will, you know from detections to to tracks to really understand um, where all of the uh, the players are. Um, there's kind of a second step to that, which is uh, the group has done a lot of work on search uh, in sports. So um, you can imagine that, you know, if you're watching a game and you see a play and you say, well, that's really interesting. I want to, I want to know if that's when that play has been run before. I want to find similar plays. Like how do you, how do you do that with, um, you know, multiple agents and how do you, how do you search for that? And you can imagine say, well, if I have, um, you know, all, all of my data coming in is, is based on player ID. I know that this human was standing in this position. But if I'm only looking, if I limit myself to only looking by based on identity, um, it really kind of limits my ability to find um, to find those similar plays. So uh, a lot of the work that the group has done is to uh, recognize again that that group structure and to find um, the uh, the the right way to represent them so that we can um, find plays based on where a player is in their uh, positional formation as opposed to being like kind of stuck to the identity. So certainly there's kind of two phases there. There's the, I want to be able to represent the data in my data model so that I have all of it available to me. And then if I want to be able to query it, I don't want to be necessarily bound to something as hard as identity. I want to know um, where the player is in their, in their group position. Interesting. So this search function that you're describing, it's not relying at all. It sounds like on tagged, uh, this is a X play, like a named play or something like that. It's based on kind of the relative positions of the players. Correct. Right. We want to learn the playbook directly from the data. So you could imagine a coach, you know, having to go through and say, all right, like here's, here's play, here's play alpha, here's, here's play beta, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's obviously very, you know, onerous and time consuming on, on the coach. Um, but again, you see you see the structure that exists in sport. You see certain actions, certain plays that get run repeatedly. And if 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 we can recognize those as kind of entities, you know, our, ourselves when we're watching a game, you know, the computer should be able to to learn how to do that um, by leveraging machine learning. So what we're able to do is to um, to find those similar plays just directly from the ball and and player trajectories. So that you could imagine, like, here's a similar play. Here's a play. Can I find all of the plays just like that? Huh? Can you can you walk us through the kind of the types of models that you use to do this? Like the the input data sounds like positions and trajectories. Like, how do you uh, how how does it work? I guess you know to the extent that you can share it. Sure. So so again, like members of the group have done um, a, a lot of work on this uh, for a while. And it's a little bit, you know, the way we've actually implemented it for different sports is has some slight subtleties. But but the general idea is that um, we kind of we're able to to using the trajectories of all of the players, find where they kind of fit into a um, into a formation. So we find some kind of um, ordering that that preserves the the structure. And then from there. And so if I can if I can push pause on that, what is what does that mean? Like how. How are you representing that? Is this like a, you know, a, a spatial type of model? Like position one is, you know, X, uh, you know, some distance and angle from another, or is it some other kind of thing? Right. So um, it's in, in some ways more, more general than that. So you could imagine for, um, 
for a sport like soccer that you can say, well, here's, here's the center back. And again, you could imagine somebody going through and actually tagging all of the players, um, but players, players swap positions, uh, they move around. And so somebody who's kind of nominally in one position in a given play, they might've, you know, switched with, with their partner just to, to get, you know, back into defensive position to have all of the spots filled. Mm-hmm. And so what we're able to do is say, well, I can actually learn directly from the data, um, the, the formation that this team plays. And so even though this person is maybe nominally a left back in this particular play, he got, you know, he had a switch you know, places with, with somebody else and he's actually playing on the right side right now. And so from their positions, we're actually able to, you know, match them back to, to a known, a known formation and then use their, use their positions at that time. Um, not, just some kind of hard coded uh, tag, and that really allows us to to understand um, their positioning based on on where they are in this again in this kind of group formational structure, as opposed to um, you know a, a label that's fixed throughout the course of the game. Okay, so the first step is kind of uh, representing the general formation of the team, so the players relative to one another. Uh, and then what's next? So, so once we understand where the players are in, in relationship to to their, you know, their formational template, like that allows us to then say, all right, you know, given that I know they're here, I can start to I can maintain a certain ordering. Um, and, you know, the, for for machine learning uh, and AI to work, you know, the computer needs to have some kind of, you know, fixed expectation of how. Um, you know, of the incoming order of the features that you're going to pass to it. So you can imagine that, you know, by knowing where the players are and where they fall in the structure, this allows us to, um, you know, to have that fixed representation of where they are. And then from there, we can do, you know, any sort of analysis on top of it. If it's, you know, in this case for search, um, it allows us to start, you know, creating a consistent metric so that we're um, comparing, you know, the, the person in, um, the left back position always to, you know, other left backs, even if at the start of, of the game that he might've been listed as a, as a different positional player. And you have this formation information. Do you look at transitions of that formation from, you know, A to B to C relative to the movement of the ball or things like that over time? Like, I guess, you, you know, the picture that I have in my head when you talk about plays is like your classic like uh clipboard you know player here player here and then transitions or trajectories or something like that and i'm trying to map all that to to the machine learning context and what you're doing sure so you could imagine as kind of a base level you could just say well i i think there's some kind of general formation out there you know Mm -hmm. maybe that that a team has and you can certainly learn that and then you can say well you know, particularly in, in soccer, as the, um, you know, as the ball moves, as a team transitions from defense to offense, you really kind of see that that formation change. You might see them become more aggressive offensively as they get the ball um, near their attacking goal. And you can see the defenders kind of kind of step up. And so that that formation changes. So by using um, various hierarchical methods, we can actually learn you know, a set or a relationship of, of these different formations and then look to see, well, okay, how does that, how does it change? Um, you know, does, does that formation change when I'm on an offense versus defense, when I have the ball closer to my goal? Um, what happens if I'm winning or, or losing? Do I start to kind of change that, mm. 
change that formation to to protect my lead as opposed to being more aggressive and trying to score. Um, and so like we have, we observe those changes, but um, because we're able to detect that automatically from the data, you know, it's not something that we have to go through and kind of, again, painstakingly label. It just, it, it's something that we can detect automatically. Right. The, you mentioned hierarchical methods. Can you elaborate on that? So, sure. So one of our team members had done work particularly in basketball on this, just as we're, as we're learning these, um, these kind of different, uh, different templates for these different states, um, he has a, an approach to do uh, multi-agent hierarchical clustering. So again, we have trajectories for uh, you know a, a, for all of the players, and we can say, all right, like what's the how do we find kind of again that that base formation, and then from there saying, all right, like this is kind of this is a certain a certain state, and then we kind of step into that and say, um, all right, like what's the right way to essentially, um, you know, order the players within that, within that state. And then from there, can I split that out? Do substates exist? Um, you know, are there additional, um, you know, clusters within there and kind of keep, keep breaking down and doing this approach until we can, you know, find these very specific, um, play states that, that we can, can identify. I came across a paper that you co-authored about myth busting set pieces in soccer. Mm -hmm. Can you share, uh, what that one is about? So, so this is a paper that um, that we uh, presented at Sloan this past year, and uh, set pieces are you know something that teams are really interested in, in because um, you know they they can you know produce a lot of um, scoring opportunities, but there's also some myths about well when I um, you know when I take a set piece if if I'm too aggressive like is it going to lead you know to a chance by the other team, and so really the, the idea here was to just kind of go through. Um, some of the commonly held uh, held beliefs are around set pieces, and really just you know look at look at what the data says instead of going you know by by your gut. Can we actually go through and 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 kind of tick these off and say you know what does the data actually support? And I think that's one of the you know really exciting things about w- what we do in this group is that um, you know a lot of people you know whether it's a coach whether it's a fan they've you know seen a lot of sport they have intuition for it they have um, you know, these kind of gut, gut instincts as to what's there, but really with the availability of, of tracking data, we can actually get to what, what the data says and actually answer these types of questions that really just aren't, aren't available um, otherwise. And for those that don't know, set pieces are like corner kicks and free kicks, free kicks in correct. soccer. Yes. Yep. And another question I had was in that paper, there were, you had some like really interesting heat maps of the player positions relative to these set pieces is that produced from the like the visual positioning data that you get correct so you know at, at a certain level we can just look to you know look at the ball and see where teams attempt to to deliver a kick uh, in these scenarios but then we can kind of go a step further and say all right let's use the tracking data to maybe understand how how teams defend corners for instance um, and so in that case, again, we have the um, we have all the player tracking data and using a convolutional neural net, we can uh, try we can you know use um, use the data and determine whether a team is in um, a, a zonal defense or a man to man defense or something in more of a hybrid. And then once we have we're able to detect that, then we can say, all right, like, does that lead to do do any of these um, lead to more goals than than the other? 
So this sounds like it maybe ties to some of the the previous work that we discussed where you've figured out through maybe these hierarchical approaches that you've used or the, the templates like you know, these types of defenses, and then you've maybe have those labeled somewhere as like labeled pictures, you know, this is this defense, this is another. And then you use that as the input to a CNN classifier to figure out uh, for a given image. Is that what you're doing? Right. So in the case of uh, of set pieces, it's a little bit different than than open play. Like you imagine in, in open play, again, there's this really strong formational signature that exists um, for something like a corner the way players set up is um, more more chaotic. Uh, it kind of lacks that that you know strong again form, formation that that you would imagine. Um, and so here we actually um, in this work just operated like directly on um, on like the image representation of the players. So you could imagine um, you know knowing where each player is, thinking of it um, you know as as having a uh, point point in an image being being occupied, and then from there saying, all right, if I know how they're moving, I can um, detect certain certain features, you know, using the CNN, uh, and then from some labels. So um, so Paul, who was the first author on the paper, um, he has a you know tremendous background uh, in in soccer, and so um, he was able to you know to go through and like look at look at the video, look at the trajectories, and say, all right, this is a this isn't. Uh, example of, of a hybrid defense as opposed to a man defense as opposed to a zone defense. And then once we have those, um, you know, build the, the classifier to detect those automatically going forward. You, you took like a myth busting type of approach uh, in the paper, obviously, given the title, and you identified 10 specific uh, myths that folks held about these types of situations, like mm-hmm. a team is more likely to score from a free kick cross compared to a corner and then you mm-hmm. like you busted that myth and showed no there's only a two percent chance of of scoring from the corner as opposed to a one percent chance of scoring from the the free kick and there were a bunch of other of these types of myths was there any that was most kind of surprising or or interesting to the team I think the the work that just um, you know identifying the defenses uh, that the teams were playing was really interesting. Just kind of seeing the, the the relative frequencies that that each played in was interesting. I think the one that I think most surprised uh, most people on the team was about um, defending uh, defending the post. So I think a lot of people um, believe that you know you should put a, a man on on at least one of the posts near and or far. Um, but what uh, you know, but what this work showed was that um, having players on both posts actually, you know, conceded the most number of goals, um, while having a player on on the back post uh, conceded the conceded the fewest. And um, you know, in, in some ways, you say, well, I I, I don't know, I, I know, you know, by by putting a player on the post, you're you're certainly kind of cutting down on the angle, but you're in some ways giving the offense more freedom to to move around. So I think that's one instance where people have really strong feelings either either way one way or the other um so uh i think that was probably the most most surprising to to members of the team can you talk a little bit about the way you processed your data for for this particular task um right so so for all of this you know we leveraged both the uh, event data that we have again that has things like um shots, passes, crosses, corners, the type of pass, where it occurred from, who took it, um, as well as as well as the tracking data. And so, um, you know, like in, in much of the work that we do, it's really a matter of, of bringing it all together um, 
And here it was a combination of both, you know, in some cases constructing features, you know, by hand that we could analyze, um, as well as, you know, in, in the case of like detecting the defense, uh, you know, using, using, uh, you know, deep learning approaches to in some way, you know, construct the features for us. Um, so, you know, it was a, a really nice paper because it, it really brought together in, in some ways, like all facets of both the data and the, and the, uh, analysis side, the events and the tracking, as well as kind of the handcrafted features, as well as the, uh, the deep learned features. And in, in addition to the specific, uh, the, the myths that you busted, you also looked at the predictive power of the the model, like the model's ability to predict whether a given team, you know, what formation a, a team is likely to take given uh, one of these set points or set pieces, rather. Um, how successful was that part of the project? Um, are you talking about the um, defense or, or just like the, the general um, setup part? Uh, well, I elaborate on both of those. I, uh, I thought I saw in there an element of predicting what a given team was likely to do, I guess, defensively. Uh, oh, okay. Sure. Right. So, you know, again, this, this used both the, the events as well as the tracking data, but, um, you know, we can go through and look at, you know, all, all of the set pieces that, um, a team has taken over the course of the season and say, all right, you know, offensively, do they take, you know, in swinging and out or versus out swinging corners, you know, short corners, um, you know, do they attempt to do flick ons? Um, and how often, you know, do they, you know, try to use this style as well as how successful are they at, at, at executing uh, on that style? And then defensively, again, you know, having been able to detect the type of, of setups that they use, um, you know, how likely are they to set up in a certain situation? And then, um, you know, when they set up that way, how likely is that to to lead to a goal? And so at a, at a glance, we can kind of look at teams and their um, frequency and their success in each of these styles and say, you know, what, how, how do they likely play or when they're playing well, how, how do they likely set up? And then from there, we can say, okay, um, you know, given two teams, I can imagine, um, you know, predicting, you know, given the offensive style of one and the defensive style of the other, how might they might match up? It sounds like the the predictions that you were doing about you know what a team is likely to do in a, any given situation were not matchup based. I don't know if this question makes any sense. Sure. So I, I think what, I think what you're getting at is um, so in in this particular paper we didn't um, we didn't do predictions off of the the matchup. That's kind of okay. the, yeah, the next yeah. the next step. Um, you know what we are looking up at here is kind of how how strong is the stylistic signature of a team? You know, certain teams you could imagine that um, they might want to take you know the same the same corner the same way every single time, regardless of of who they're playing or how how the defense sets up. Maybe they're very very predictable just historically. Mm -hmm. um, but another team could be um, you know you know I don't I don't really care how I take it. I just want to do whatever is the most effective. So I'm going to look at the defense and whatever they present you know, to me, I'm going to take whatever I feel is, is the best approach in, in that moment. And so here it was more of a, how predictable is a team historically. But again, once you've kind of created this, this, you know, style analysis of the team, the next step is to say, all right, um, you know, given two teams, how do I expect them to, to interact? Awesome. Awesome. Well, what are some, uh, some other interesting projects on your roadmap or to-do list? How do you see kind of the 
application of ML and deep learning and uh, AI evolving as applied to sports? You know, so the, the availability of tracking data really kind of, you know, leaves us with, with endless possibilities. There's, um, you know, so much that we can do there to understand, again, the plays that teams run um, to identify, to identify plays and then to predict, um, to predict future plays, to do things like, um, right, to, to predict where the players will, will be. So in another paper, you know, that, that our group was involved with through a, through a collaboration uh, with with uh, Disney, you know, the past couple of years was um, sorry. So it's through a, through a collaboration with um, with Disney Research. The the past two years, there's been some work at Sloan on on ghosting. So originally it was done in soccer, and this past year for for basketball, where um, you know, given the um, offensive players, like could you you know predict you know where the the defensive players are. Um, and so there's, you know, a lot of interesting things there. We have this huge wealth of data and with, um, you know, the, all the advances in, um, in machine learning in particular and deep learning, we can start to do really fine grain analysis and simulation, uh, predicting where the players are, where they'll go, what type of plays could be run. Um, there's really just a, a huge amount of, of different avenues that, that you can go there. And, you know, it's really all, you know, largely driven by the data and, and having access to the data is really what enables us to ask these, you know, very specific um, questions. What if, um, you know, given, given a play and I have a shot, um, you know, what if I move players around? What if a different player took, um, took the shot? Uh, there's a lot of opportunities to do um, personalized uh, modeling, which we've, we've done. So uh, as I was explaining, again, like given, given a certain play, um, you know, what happens if there's a different defender, a different, a different shooter, what happens if the, the angle or the, the distances are just slightly different? Um, how does that impact the outcome? And then building up from single plays to, to more complex um, kind of longer scale activities. Uh, you, you mentioned in there how this all kind of revolves around having access to the data. Uh, I'm curious in your, what's your sense for how accessible sports applications of ML are for hobbyists? Like are there, are there freely available uh, or open source data sets that um, you're familiar with that folks could use to play around with certainly you know clearly sports is a hobby for a lot of people and data science is a you know a hobby or interest for a lot of people if folks wanted to combine those two and get started um are there ways to uh do interesting things or you know are all the data sources kind of proprietarily collected you know i, I think in the past certainly from my experience you know the you know before i was here you know a lot of times people looking for sports data were kind of um, you know, limited to to trying to scrape things off of off of websites and that to to, to build their models. Um, you know, we actually uh, through some of the papers that um, that that our group has published have three data sets out there that that people can re- you know quest for for research purposes. Um, you know, one of them is um, in in soccer. One of them is in basketball. Those are both trajectory based. Um, related to to the uh, to you know the trajectory analysis um, that we've done, so we have um, actually through uh, our website have three uh, data sets that that people can request to do um, to do you know academic research work you know hobbyist type type analysis. Um, two of them are trajectory based. One of them for soccer. One of them for basketball. They're 
probably more complex, you know, it's, it's just literally like X, Y position of the players. And so, um, you're, you know, they have to use some sophisticated techniques there to really kind of parse it and understand it. Um, because it's, you know, again, pretty, pretty complex data. Um, but one of the other papers that we had at Sloan, uh, this past year was doing, um, uh, wind probability analysis. And so there is, uh, data, another data set that we have where, um, you, you can, you know, look at that data to, to recreate some of some of those results. And probably I'd say like for the, for the general public, that's probably the, um, you know, most accessible, accessible one, um, you know, that if players wanted to, that if people wanted to get their, their hands dirty with, you know, it's a really, uh, unique set of data that, that they can use to answer a bunch of questions. Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for taking the time to share what you're working on. It sounds like really fun stuff. Yep. Yeah, it's great. You know, we we have uh, really the a huge amount of data out there that, that we can do, you know, really interesting things with, you know, across across a variety of sports. And, um, you know, it's, it's ever evolving. And, and, you know, with uh, a lot of the advances over the, the past, you know, several years, um, really kind of the sky's the limit as far as what we can explore and what kind of new new data points we can reveal and and interesting questions that we can ask and answer. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Jennifer or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 157. To follow along with the AI and Sports series, visit twimlai.com slash AI and Sports. If you're a fan of the podcast, we'd like to encourage you to head to iTunes and leave us your best rating and review. They are super helpful as we push to grow this show and the community. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.